Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, all you boys, girls, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. If he does kiss you before the sun sets on the third day, you'll remain human permanently. But if he doesn't, you turn back into a mermaid and you belong to me. No, Ariel! Have we got a deal? If I become human, I'll never be with my father or sisters again. That's right. But you'll have your man. <laughs> Life's full of tough choices, isn't it? You may be asking yourself, why in the world is Ron playing a clip from The Little Mermaid? Well, that's a good question. Today on the show, I have an amazing interview with Christy Marchese, CEO and founder of Kinema, a company that allows you to play and distribute films in private settings. Their mission is to make it fun, easy, and financially rewarding for anyone who wants to host or distribute films in their own communities, from individuals to organizations. One of the things I try to do with this podcast is explore all aspects of filmmaking in the industry that are intriguing, provocative, and interesting. I wanted to create a show that feels like the kind of geeky, cinema-loving conversation you might have with a friend like in the corner of a party or something, or maybe at a happy hour after a long day of work. And let me tell you, today's conversation with Christy is that to a T. We cover a wide range of topics like the role of Disney princesses in cinema, ergo My Little Mermaid reference, uh, how do we deal with movies made by cinematic heroes who've fallen, how race, gender, and sexuality have been portrayed in movies and television, and then we get into her fascinating career from her work with participant media to the work she did with um, Norman Lear and his company to the first company she created, Picture Motion, to her current company, Kinema. I have no doubt that you'll enjoy listening to this discussion as much as I had uh, fun having it. Oh, and one other thing before we get going, at one point in the conversation, uh, she and I were talking about uh, the movie Birth of a Nation and at the time, I was trying to recall the name of the filmmaker, and I was like uh, mentioning Cecil, De Cecil B. DeMille. Just for the record, I know it's Z.W. Griffith, uh, but I frequently get those two names mixed up. Like they kind of, you know, sound similar. They have a D in it, and they kind of have like a, an initial. And anyway, I know it's Z.W. Griffith, so I just wanted to make that clear, just to clear my conscience. Okay. Anyway, enough of my babbling. Without further ado. Let's get to my conversation with Christy Marchese, CEO and founder of Kinema. See you on the other side. Is your last name, or how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Marchese. The best Marchese. way to say it is like, like Marchesa, the designer, but then with an E at the end. Yes, yes, yes. Is it Italian? Um, yes, I'm married into it. So I'm just going to close oh, all okay. these tabs so I don't have any... Any distractions and any noise. 
Um, yep, married into it. And yeah, now I normally get Marchese. So right. whatever, whatever you want to say, I'll probably answer to it. <laughs> uh, so like one of my, uh, you know, these little pet peeves that people have. So one of my pet peeves is people pronouncing uh, bruschetta, bruschetta instead of bruschetta. Oh, really? <laughs> it's like, because well, the correct pronunciation from an Italian point of view is bruschetta, because that's how you pronounce the CH. Um, I start doing that. <laughs> yeah. If you want to be a life of a party, you just start correcting people whenever you're at an Italian restaurant. <laughs> And they start, they start ordering bruschetta. Like it's actually bruschetta. All right. Like if we're gonna go to Ibiza, like <laughs> then we better make sure we have to have Italian food. That's, That's right. We'll, I'll find a way to get all of them wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Well, uh, like I said, thanks for coming on. And I always like to start off with a little unusual question, which is, do you remember Christy your first? First movie I listened to your podcast. Oh, you I did. You're gonna ask me. All right, your first. Well, your first movie memory. First movie memory. Thank you. I like a, I, I was, like a person who does their homework. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I was curious, and then I listened to that. And I'm like, I wonder what mine is. Then I got distracted. I forgot <laughs> to think of mine. I was like, uh, wow, there goes being prepared out the door. Right. Did you enjoy? Um, did you enjoy the episode you listened to? I did actually. Yeah. Well, I was listening to the Paper Tigers one. So we oh, worked yeah, in the yeah. Paper Tigers. So Bao Tran was on. So I was like, oh, no I was listen. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sweet. you pronounced, um, oh, speaking of pronouncing, you were talking about pronouncing Gung Fu. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this makes sense now. <laughs> I'm big on pronouncing words correctly according to their nationality. I think that makes sense. It's, yeah. it's the way they're meant to be. That's, that's what they're written for. They're hey. meant to be pronounced that way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Anyway, your uh, first movie memory. First movie memory. I actually, what's interesting is I actually couldn't really remember. I think hmm. it actually is a Disney movie. I think it was uh -huh. the first that I had three pop into my head, and I think it was The Little Mermaid. Uh, oh, I love that one. Yeah, and I think the and I, what's weird is it's hard to remember when you're a kid, right? Time, what is time? Right. It all, it all gets mixed up. So who knows right. if, if my memory even matches against the actual timeline of the release of this film? Right. But we were, we were. I, I grew up outside of LA. You had access to a lot of people who worked in Hollywood or were Hollywood adjacent. And my, you know, my dad's friend's brother worked for Disney and he had a copy of Little, Little Mermaid that was a work in progress where it showed the making of the animations and it showed the wow. sketches of Ariel. And so for, I have this memory of watching it as a little, little kid and seeing that version of it and seeing how the film was put together. I don't know if that's my first memory. It's just the first thing that kind of came to mind is one of the earliest films that I really remember and loved, but also had this like behind the scenes sneak peek that made me love the, love the animation process. Did, did you did you like that movie? Little Mermaid? Yeah, I did. It's yeah. been fun. Like as, as like, you know, I'm a millennial. I live in New York City. I consider mm -hmm. myself pretty lefty, liberal, feminist. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it's been interesting to participate in the conversations <laughs> around Disney princesses. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> because you're combating like the the love of a movie and like a you know a woman breaking away from her father and, and the, her societal expectations under the sea. Yeah. Um, but then to give her voice up for a man, and I I have a fun time looking at the discourse on the the, mm -hmm. fem the feminist discourse or lack thereof of Ariel and the Little Mermaid. <laughs> well, she's an interesting one as a character because uh she's complicated because in some ways yeah she definitely fills the stereotypical tropes of the disney princess in terms of the sacrifices she makes for a man but you know she has this rebel streak she does what she wants to do and she goes out and, and does it so what what how, are you, how have you fallen what side of the line have you fallen in that discourse 
to go with what I remember and like which the is... impact it had on me, which is to be defiant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was the impact I had. It was less about you're going to go, there was a prince or a castle. It was more about standing out and breaking free um, in, in some capacity. So I, I'd like to remember that version of Ariel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and now looking back, I'm like, huh, I guess in a way she did kind of give up. And basically it's, it's another classic story of like two women fighting over a man between right. her and Vanessa at the end of the film. So right. like, all right. I think like they, you know, they, you have, I, I think over time I've actually grown to appreciate Ursula's character. Ursula's <laughs> uh, awesome, right. She's awesome, right? Like a lot of the yeah. Disney villains are like, wait, these, I'm sorry, wait, these what older single women become the villains? Right. Like this is horrible. This is like <laughs> terrible messages if you're sending, sending them kids. <laughs> right. But I don't think our brains register that as a little kid. Oh, we just see not. like, right. We see, you know, a role model in a way of someone breaking free, has talent, good to her friends, and an octopus creature that's that's the enemy. I'm curious right. to see what they're gonna do with the uh, with the new live action one where they've yes. changed up the cast. They give like uh, Aquafina is playing um, whatever the seagull's name is. I'm forgetting his name that's right, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then well, um, half of Chloe Haley playing yeah, Haley Ariana. Bailey. That was, Haley, the, okay. that was the debate I was really interested in a couple of years ago all the people debating on the fact that uh, a black woman was going to be playing the I little mermaid people are debating it she looks like a disney princess like like disney right. princesses like have these big beautiful eyes if you look right. at her she's a disney princess just like <laughs> right. it looks alone right so it's like shocking she's not shocking she wouldn't get cast for it right so, right well it's, it's funny the, the kind of things that people choose to get angry over yeah in terms of when it comes to issues of all those kind of issues, whether it's issues of feminism or race or gender dynamics. I think there's a group of people who, who kind of feel like, here's my theory on it. I think, there, I think there are large groups of people who for the longest time have had a certain level of, they're in a, a demographic where that demographic has a certain level of hegemony in a particular area. And it kind of feels like when you're, the analogy I use is like when you're two little kids and the older kid has had all the toys. And to be fair, the, the parents give half the toys to the, the little kid. So it naturally feels to the older kid like you're taking something away, right? Like this, these toys have been mine for so many years. Now this young upstart comes up and gets half of it taken away. That's, that's my analogy. That's my metaphor. That's actually... I think it's it's hegemony, by the way. That's the, the way you want to say. Thank. <laughs> Ding. Dude, I actually have no idea. I just really wanted to. I was looking for a word. That's I could so good. That, that is so <laughs> good. Okay. I have to look. That it up is a now. really good analogy. I think it's yeah. right. It's like because anything, but it would. I think it adds something to it. Of, is there's this assumption that there is loss that something is taken away rather mm. rather than there is more toys for everybody. There's more pie so for toys. everybody. And in fact, actually, like in the, the combination of, of playing with the toys will create new toys. I'm really losing the analogy here. No, I can't but I think that. like there's it's a there is a short minded thinking of it that I am I'm only losing something versus like there are there is a scenario in which all boats rise together. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see that a lot. You know, we talked a little bit about the Little Mermaid and the memory you have of Little Mermaid and and sort of like maintaining that and. Now, how do you wrestle those memories in light of either like where you stand now on certain issues or, or the discourse that's going on in the, in the industry? 
and it seems like I have this conversation with every episode. I have to, when I'm editing these episodes, I need to be mindful because it keeps coming up. But it's not coming. I'm not doing it on purpose. And this is this idea of like movies uh, that I've treasured growing up as a kid that I look at them now and I kind of cringe. And the one that I always bring up is Sixteen Candles. And, Ooh, yeah. and I, I just did the, I just did the cringe. <laughs> yes, you just did the cringe. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and you know, so you know, listeners, if you've heard any other episode where I've talked about it, my apologies. Maybe I can find a different angle with Christy here. But you know, this idea of you know, with some candles, there's two issues. One, the long dog dong character, which is like a Chinese version of step and fetch it. But there is also the date rate. Uh, scenario they don't actually show it there isn't a scene but they talk about it and they make a joke out of it and um and so so maybe the angle i'll put with you is maybe not with that movie specifically but in general since we've talked about it with regards to little mermaid and also with you know 16 candles are there when are there any other movies for you for which you have these memories that now you kind of either have to set the movie aside because of like you know maybe it's a a Woody Allen film or a Kevin Spacey film that you can no longer look at the same anymore I both those again same situation uh any movies like that for you a couple come to mind so I mean yes to some extent Woody Allen films like they're they were entertaining I watched them I don't really feel a loss in my life not being able to see them moving forward. Like I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. (laughs) So there also are, and maybe this is the the point about sharing toys. There are so many other filmmakers that are getting the opportunity to fill the gap Mm. of like, well, if this, you know, studio or this distributor is not, you know, doesn't have their Woody Allen film or not focusing on that. And there's a, there's a conversation about um, equity and access. Then maybe that this we're seeing more filmmakers. I'm seeing more films. I I do try and see more films directed by women, just because I'm a woman. I work in the space, and I discover new talent that way. So I think that it's it's created more opportunity. And I actually there's there's one, and it's less. I would actually say it's less than movies, but I'm saying it only because I just thought of it last night. I'm I'm like a big Harry Potter dork. Like I I love the Harry Potter series. I Um, you're going with this, yeah. So yeah. And it's, it's, and I don't even know if I'll go exactly the same way, but I, I started, you know, reading it when they, when they first came out. So I, I can't remember, it was like 98 or something that, that's right. aged myself, but it must've been junior high around then. Um, and so <laughs> I was born in 84, you know, my yeah. age now. <laughs> well, I'm only laughing, shaking my head because people can't see me because just my age, <laughs> I won't go into, but anyway, go ahead. Age is but a number. So it's anyway, but a so number. It's, Whatever. So you see, so you hear the stories, and I have I'm really revealing a lot about myself here. When I can't sleep at night, I listen to the audiobooks of Harry Potter because Jim Dale's narration is just so soothing. I just go right to sleep. Cool. And so now I've listened to these audiobooks for years, and it's just fascinating that like it seems like every couple years, like the society moves forward, and there's books that are just that are stuck in time, which are they were you know she's you know look you know Hermione's a great great uh, great character. She's fighting for house elves. Like the Death Eaters are definitely like reflective of the KKK. Like it's like there's a lot <laughs> right. of like clear themes about what is right and wrong, and yet there's certain things that don't quite translate. Hmm. There's it is a very white cast. The mm-hmm. Asian character's name is just Cho Chang. Like the only black character is Kingsley Shacklebolt. Like the uh, naming wasn't exactly really thought through. <laughs> right, right. Um. And then there's just the themes in, in the relationship where you have. I now is like in my 30s feel like why is Hermione and so into Ron Weasley where he's constantly picking on her? 
this is a long like journey of like, I still think like a lot of the great themes hold up, mm -hmm. but then there's these small things that just wouldn't happen today. Cause it wouldn't be, it, it's too, it's too limited of, um, to one person's personal experience, I think. Right, and like right. what's in their immediate vicinity in terms of people versus thinking, how is this going to be received and how can everybody see themselves in this? Yeah. I won't even go into the, the whole trans conversation. Yeah. That's where <laughs> I thought you were going to go, but we don't, we don't need to go there. Uh, for those listening who, who might not know, um, J.K. Rowling, I guess, I don't, I don't know if she's outwardly anti-trans, but she said some things that the trans community really interpret that way. And it's funny, one of the podcasts I listen to is this podcast called The Read, and both the, it's a very popular podcast, two um, Black podcasters, but they're both, they're both queer. Like one's outwardly gay, the other is queer. And they're huge Harry Potter fans, but they're also huge defendants of the LGBTQ community. And, and I've heard them on their podcast a few times, just, you know, sort of like wrestling with this disappointment, this profound disappointment they have, like, like the, the woman on the show, I guess she's read the Harry Potter books a few times, and she's a big reader. And they're both into movies and stuff. And so they're struggling with, you know, up to a certain point, JK was like, a, a hero because of the characters that she had and the themes that she had and this had really disappointed them and I know there's something when our heroes fall you know I was reflecting a few weeks ago um uh Bill Cosby got out or was released or whatever and like just as a black man it was just so frustrating when disappointing that he was and I wasn't in the industry so when all his bad stuff was going down i didn't know about it like i was in i was in high school and college when his shows were on on the show and it was just such a it was they were cool shows because they show up for obvious reasons they showed a black family and they didn't make a, a big deal of the fact that they're black like like on blackish it's a successful family but the show is very much about them being successful in black whereas that wasn't the case with the cosby and so now Cosby, Cosby. I mean, there's uh, there's this line for a reason. Like, what is it? Die the hero or live long enough to become the villain? Like, <laughs> yes, it's it applies to like almost everybody. Right, <laughs> it right. seems that anyone that 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 becomes the hero that comes that yeah. we put at this pedestal, such a high pedestal, I it know. is difficult to say that. Now, of course, I mean drugging and sexually assaulting women in their sleep, like actively being at their trans. Like these are some always the that, villain. <laughs> yeah we just didn't know it we just didn't know it <laughs> yeah. or, or we didn't listen to the people who did know it and who came out about it which is a oh another thing um just about hollywood what, or whatever um it's interesting because it's talking about we just didn't know it i was listening to one of the podcasts i listened to is oh the business with kim masters who's like great podcast yeah oh yeah she's so good. what i like about kim masters for those of you who don't i'm sure people who listen is podcast probably have heard her at some point but you know she's works for the hollywood reporter but she's just like one of these toughest nails reporters who like who like pushes back and she was interviewing barry diller who's like this multi-billionaire i don't know if he's a multi-billionaire but he's a billionaire he's the ceo of iac which owns like vimeo and i think snapchat and all these other companies and she was like asking him about his relationship with scott rudin who's been in the news because of just being like apparently the movie uh swimming with sharks was based on him um that, oh, which that is 
which is a Kevin Spacey movie, but by the way, it's a, like a satire that came out in the 90s, I think, about this Scott Rudinesque character who just berates his his assistant. And it's a dark comedy because then the assistant like kidnaps him and starts torturing him. Um, but it's hilarious. But yeah, the guy who wrote it supposedly worked for a producer like that. And um, but anyway, Kim Masters was interviewing Barry Diller about his relationship with with Scott Rudin. And he kept saying, like, you know, basically he was saying he recognized that Scott is a tough person who likes to have like heated debates about creativity. Don't we all do that? But he's never seen anything. Basically, he was just playing the ignorance card. And it's fine, very hard to believe that someone as powerful as Barry Diller in the business is completely devoid of any knowledge. Because like a few weeks ago, the show had all these interviews with, with assistants telling these horrible stories. And so it goes to your point about things people either don't know or pretend they don't know. I think it's a mix. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, I don't know. I haven't had this type of experience. Like I, right. I've not worked at a large company like that, but you got to imagine one, it, it trickles down from somewhere that like it's, it's yeah. okay in some way. And second, I think I'm going to base all of this off of season two of succession, but <laughs> and oh, imagine that, there's I imagine this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's usually, it actually might've been the end of season one, essentially, like, yeah. but um, yeah, it was because I think um, Kendall was like still CEO or something. He, right. he said so something spoilers like, spoilers for Secession if you haven't oh. seen it. Yet. No, that's okay. That's I'll okay. see if I can do it without the spoilers. Basically, yeah. Kendall says to somebody like, I appreciate the employees who like keep the shit off my desk or something. Oh, right. And so right, like, right. It's, he's like, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And so there is something there that maybe I basically based all of my points of view on television and movies. <laughs> I'm the same way. So, I'm the same way. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like there might be something like that. Like, you're right. Maybe someone like at the top didn't technically hear but it was actively kept off their plate or there were mo things in place that like prevented them from seeing in some way and i think yeah. it's just we saw this with all the, the harvey weinstein stuff there's a lot of fear of reporting like there's mm -hmm. there's, you, there's a history of people not being believed and actually being punished for it so i could imagine people didn't want yeah um and i remember hearing from it was, it was a friend's girlfriend that worked uh for Rudin years ago i didn't know i didn't know his reputation but i knew she had a like he would make comments about how she was having to go into to therapy afterwards. It was so damaging. And I couldn't fathom it. I was like, how could someone have to go into therapy after like being in, I, I won't say the role, but like being in a particular role with this individual and then hearing all this stuff come out now, 10 years later, I'm like, that's so fascinating. I was, I was judgy on my part by hearing, how could somebody be that bad that you're claiming you need to go to therapy? And I think from what we've been hearing, it's, it, it was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. yeah. It's funny you brought up secession. Cause I, I would think of someone like Barry Dillard to be more like the father figure in that in that TV show. I can't remember his name offhand. Uh, but Logan. Logan, yeah. Maybe not necessarily because he's really an SOB and a horrible person. So I, I I don't I'm not saying that Barry Dillard is like that, but in terms of the kind of knowledge and you know, having his fingers and in places where he would have to to get to the level that he got um yeah because logan's pretty horrible <laughs> yeah, yeah logan i feel like they, they he's i'd like to think that that's a character that just doesn't exist if you've, anyone's seen the boar on the floor episode let's just hope that like yeah that person doesn't actually oh my exist. gosh <laughs> oh my gosh that episode <laughs> that episode yeah, yeah. If, you, if you haven't watched secession yet uh season three is coming out soon 
Can't wait. I think October, it, yeah. It's a fun. Um, well, you know, we've been talking about movies and whatnot. And, you know, before we get into the kind of things you do now, I wanted to find out, like, how did you, like, how did your relationship with filmmaking even begin in the first place? Like, what was it that inspired you, that got you into it? And then how did it, like, sort of, like, evolve over the years? Yeah. I mean, so I actually, I loved filmmaking. I really loved film editing. So I, I was lucky, again, growing up in, like, suburbs outside of L.A., um we we had access to it essentially so in two ways so my grandfather had a recorder like a, a cam recorder <laughs> and he would let me play with it and I learned how to edit basically by doing stop start on like the the VHS and then the mini DVs um and I had, was very close with my cousins and we'd go out for to stay at my grandparents for grandmother's week every summer and we evolved from you know doing small skits as children to uh, being teenagers with a video camera and we would make music videos. Or first we made plays, then we recorded them, then we elevated it to movies and then we started making music videos. So if you don't dig too deep, but we have um, the 2001 season of Manning Television, MTV, um, is out on the internet somewhere because I can't get it off. But we, the, so that was like my first love, was learning how to film, piece something together, tell a story. Um, and I found myself really enjoying the storytelling process more in the editing room. Um, my high school, again, LA suburbs, we had access to film editing tools and, and film equipment. So we got to take film courses and same thing. I did a TV class and we had to produce shows. We had a live show, we did deliver movies and, and music videos. And so when I went to college, I actually wanted to go into film editing and then, you know, did one internship or had access to a limited internship before college and realized, oh, editing is sitting in a dark room by yourself for days on end. Um, this is right when it was all, it was moving to digital editing. Right, right. The 2001, 2000, 2002, actually. So I just kind of took a step back. The world had changed a bit too. To make the long story short, 2001, 9-11 happened. You just get a, a big shift in the world. You're transitioning from high school to college, understanding the world's a bigger place to be a super cliche. And then just wanted to do something that I felt like made more of a difference or felt more connected than just going a Hollywood filmmaking route and sitting in a room editing trailers or something that, that didn't quite gel with me at the time. So totally switched careers. And, and then of course came, came back to it because I, I do I do love the movies. And I think that they are cultural movers and there's a way to make an impact um, through film and television. What did you switch careers to? International, uh, wait, international security and conflict resolution with a focus on Islam in the Middle East. <laughs> well, were, you, were you like a consultant, a secret agent? That was the plan. I was going to be a secret agent. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I mean, I'm like, you know, a kid in, in, in school trying to figure out what the hell is just interested. So I just kept going, kept taking courses. Oh, so that was like, your, that was what you studied. Yes, got exactly. It, got That's got what it. I studied. We, uh, I went to school in San Diego. We were close to the uh, Pendleton military base. So you had interesting international relations courses. So yeah, totally different. Then kind of swung back. So I worked for, for Human Rights Watch um, for a little bit and then worked for a nonprofit called Declare Yourself, which is all about youth voter participation and getting young people civically engaged. But it was started by a TV producer named Norman Lear. So it's kind of like creeping my way back to the entertainment space through um, through nonprofit work. I like how you say it was started by a TV producer, <laughs> Norman Lear. Like, he, like some, <laughs> this, you know, this television producer, Norman Lear, have you heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you know well it's like I, I don't know like some people like obviously are like he's he's i mean he's he's he helped change my career he's oh yeah iconic. for sure like yeah you know. incredible human being refocused like the work i was doing is he still alive he, i think he's still yes he just he turned 99 last week that's amazing 
for, yeah. for the, I can't imagine people listening to this podcast wouldn't know, but you like all in a family, the Jeffersons, good times. It's interesting. Mod, mod. Yes, can't forget mod. <laughs> now that was a spinoff too, wasn't that a spinoff of from All in the Family? All in the Family, I believe. Was yeah. it All in the Family? Yeah, it was because she I'm was like a neighbor. Yeah, I think she was. Um, here's what's interesting about Norman Lear. Like, when you go back and look at like the Jeffersons, or even All in the Family when they when they dealt with race issues, like I always think about like people who aren't in a particular demographic, they make movies either aimed at that demographic or, or geared towards it. And I like when I think about those shows, and I think you did good times too. Um, like I think that I think those shows had like positive images of black people. I don't feel like they were especially like the Jeffersons. I mean, I, I feel like there was an aspect of those stories. I mean, there isn't a black person alive, like you don't start singing moving on up that you don't really get into it right I mean probably no one not just black people right it was such a popular show I know it yeah <laughs> yes but I, I just think that he was an individual who and even when you think about the themes he addressed and all in the family as regards not even to racism like you go back in the mid-70s and they were dealing with I remember there was a, a couple of episodes about a transvestite um, who was a friend of one of the of one of the kids and and Archie Bunker's relation to that person and uh i remember dealing with the episode where that person was like murdered because of how different um wow yeah it was it was and so this was like mid 70s i remember watching that you know when i was a kid now i'm dating myself and it's he just dealt with he dealt with topics that people feel like only now media is dealing with but he did it in a way on like some of the most popular television shows at the time and I don't even think now some of the stuff that he did back then you could put on you could put on TV now. Even though he was using it like Archie Bunker, like he was a horrible person, but that was he was that that was like a feature, not a bug. Like, and he was meant to be. He was, he was meant, meant to be. be exactly. He was meant to be representative of that perspective of, of America. I can't remember if it was the documentary on Norman or it was another documentary I was watching around like sitcoms at that time period. Like that, you know, that was a, he was like a classically trained actor who had mm -hmm. to really accept that he was going to kind of, he was going to play a buffoon and he was probably going to be liked and he didn't agree with any of his points of view on it. Right, right. And I, I'm curious your thoughts on this, like in putting together, I think you're right. Like if we, it was groundbreaking in many ways to have those conversations. I think, then I think, I think George and Archie actually like kissed at one point. Wasn't there like a, like a kiss or something that crossed yeah, yeah. lines? Like, yeah, George was, um, kissed him on the, well, there was a Sammy Davis Jr. episode. Oh, was it Sammy Davis Jr. Episode? Sammy some, Davis, there was a kiss at some point. Sammy like, Davis you know, like, Jr., um, who I think was playing himself, kissed Archie Bunker. Um, someone was taking a picture and they kissed Archie Bunker right when the photo was, or something like that. And Archie Bunker's Okay, I think this is that I, I think yeah. I, mean, I wasn't I wasn't watching at the time of broadcast, but I remember yeah. it like anecdotally of like what yeah, it, yeah, like, yeah. the impact it had. Um, but there were also some there were some um, stereo there was stereotyping. There were oh, characters mm -hmm. that were playing like characteristics of, or caricatures, I should say, mm -hmm. um, of themselves. And that is that was sitcom in a way. You're over the top. Um, right. Like every character was over the top. Archie was over the top. But again, I can't remember if it was this documentary or another. But it it's that wouldn't hold up. And in some of the some of the characters I, I've heard have been like damaging in terms of reputation. And there was a, a conflict, I believe. I wish I could remember which which DACA was this, where one of the characters was saying this, I actually think that this is a negative stereotype um, for the African American community, and I don't really want to represent it this way anymore. And the producers of the show were like, but this is what's selling right now. And even the show is progressive, 
but now that we've been on for a few years, your character, I, I got I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was the one that said like dynamite. Is that one? Oh There's yeah, yeah, yeah. JJ Walker. That? that was good okay. times. It was okay. It was good times. I wasn't certain, and again, I'm not sure if, if this was even Norman's show. But I thought, it, given what you said about because you know, something might hold up at the time, um, and while it can be perceived progressive at the time, it probably won't hold up now. And there were still conversations back then about there were this might not work. This might shouldn't hold up, and we shouldn't be progressing this negative stereotype or this overly car um, caricature of a person. And there's still resistance. So I think there was a lot of great work that was done then. And like, but if we were to judge it by today's standards, it wouldn't hold up. <laughs> No, for sure. And I think that, um, I mean, I think one of the things that is true for any medium is that as society evolves and people evolve, the media that they create is going to evolve with it. And sometimes they hold up and sometimes, you know, they don't, you know, Disney's dealing with that now, not only with the Disney princesses, but, you know, Disney has a very precarious relationship with race issues and, um, and, you know, Song of the South and, yeah. the crows from uh it from uh what is it oh dumbo the crows from the, the crows oh, that's right so like if you, when you if you, when you go to disney plus for some of their for, for some of their movies there's like like a disclaimer or a little blurb at the beginning saying basically some of the images in this could be offensive that's that's how it was back in the day we hope they can, but we wanted to keep it in here to preserve the original vision. And so like the crows and, and Dumbo are just straight up black stereotypes in terms of how they talk and act. So what do you think? What do you think about, I have my own thoughts. I'm curious. What do you think about that? So should a film, if the options are put the film up as is, don't put the film up at all or edit those scenes out and like make it essentially a modern version of the film. I guess, where would you fall on, on overall or yeah. any of those, any in particular film? I mean, I think part of it kind of depends what it is, but I, I think the way they approach it is probably a good way of approaching it because I think, um, I think when it's the context, like, like for instance, I would hope that I don't know who owns the rights to, um, um, what's the, the nation one? I can't remember. Right birth now. of a nation. Birth of a nation. I don't know who owns the rights to the birth of a nation. Like, do I the think original one? The original one. Yeah, the original yeah. one from yeah. Cecil. <laughs> Does this season be the mail? Maybe don't quote me on it. My, my oh, well. old, my old vintage film. Is yeah, that. yeah. Anyway, Birth of a Nation, which obviously is just like KKK propaganda, but as a film, you know, it did a lot of first. It was groundbreaking in its time. Do I think that should be taught in film school? I personally think so. Yes, as long as there's conversation around the propaganda and everything about it. Um, do I think it should be airing? on a streamer as entertainment? No. When I think about something like, uh, you know, like Dumbo or something where there are some individual scenes versus the entire film, whatever, I think, you know, having like the message that they had, I wouldn't, I think makes sense. And, you know, outside of something that could be legitimately like triggering, like maybe some horrible, you know, scene of violence or a rape or something like that, where it's not necessarily required to have it in there that's probably where i would land but I, I i think as long as you're addressing it and having an opportunity for people to have that that conversation um because then the parents can decide for themselves you know that's something that they want their kids to watch how about you yeah i think i'm i think that makes sense i'd be down kind of for for, for some of the editing i actually think some of the films like like birth of a nation i think mm -hmm. 
I like to believe people are good for the uh -huh. most part. There are many people who are just suck. And I think right. there are people that seek out content that will actively reinforce their Better. horrible views. Yeah. So when I think of a movie like that, like Birth of a Nation or mm -hmm. films that lean towards that, that point of view, I would like to make them as inaccessible as possible. Maybe this mm -hmm. is like freedom of information or freedom of speech. I'm, I'm right. sure I'm crossing something here. But if I own that film and I don't, I don't know what I'm the streamer and I'm trying to decide, no, I would lock that film away. And if you'd like to access it for educational purposes, like absolutely anyone can have access to it. I'm just not going to make it as easy for you to just get it right yeah. on the streamer. Yeah. So I, I, I try and okay. kind of hide it away, like tuck it away in a warehouse somewhere. And the dumb one, I, I actually think it would be worth an edit. Like mm -hmm. it's just, it's just a couple scenes. It doesn't affect the story in any way. Yeah. I mean, look at Space Jam, A New Legacy. Where's Pepe Le Pew? Completely cut out because he was- Was he ever in there? Oh, he, so I guess he I was, but they took him out. I think he was in the first was? one. Yeah, so the new oh, one, right. he got cut. But yes, he's yes, actually, yes. I don't know if he's cut from all the Looney Tunes, but right. he didn't he didn't make this cut, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> and now, now, why is Pepe Le Pew being, being canceled? Oh, Pepe Le Pew. I mean, I know why, but I'm just curious. You can share I mean, with the audience. He was stalking and seeking to entrap the female cat in his, in his, I presume some sort of a sexual act, but as children, you don't know. You just know he was constantly chasing the female cat and trying to trap her into a loving embrace. Right. It's like it was a form of like cartoon sexual assault. And the entire show was about a skunk trying to sexually assault the cat. <laughs> that is. was the plot. <laughs> and, that was it. <laughs> and I, it's so funny because I distinctly remember I was in... I think it was some elementary school or seventh grade or something like that. I think I might have been elementary school. I remember liking a girl. I started liking girls young. And I distinctly remember thinking, I'm going to be like Pepe Le Pew when I like <laughs> a girl. Where I was just, not like I was going to be grabbing her or anything, but that I was going to be insistent and I wasn't going to give up. And if he could do it, I could do it. I remember thinking that as a kid, like specifically, oh, that's a great strategy for getting a girl to like you just to keep it's been like that in all them. the movies to be yeah. relentless to poke yeah. fun at her to like right. tease her to like it's a, i gotta go back to the harry potter thing <laughs> listening now how like rude ron is hermione and she just decides to be with him in the end i'll dream better like you could do better than that <laughs> go for better for you yeah <laughs> wasn't there to support you earlier i know you were children but still it's not the message we should be sending kids these days <laughs> right right so. I, and I wonder, like, the kind of damage that has subconsciously, because I've heard so many stories of women who have stayed in abusive relationships. I just had someone I know recently relate something similar to this. Uh, and I just wonder how much of that comes from, like, years of media where it's kind of, like, made to be the norm. It is. And it works both ways. Like, it's also, mm -hmm. and then, like, men are told, yeah, if you if you work hard enough, if you surprise her if you risk your life for her if you yeah, there's there's so many movies i've seen like this if you try you do the grand gesture yeah. the overly grand gesture and it becomes all about if you just work hard enough and do the bigger thing then of course she'll turn around it's about convincing her rather than mm -hmm. listening her and you can see how that gets ingrained now the reverse side like if you're if you're if you're a woman you're brought up differently you're brought up you know hold your virtue um of course i'm going to overstate a little bit we've got a little bit more modern right. but we're not told your job as a woman is to go out in the world make enough money and like go find a man and support him and like be the career person <laughs> but i told that we're taught this idea that we have to protect um virginity virginity is a virtue if you think if you watch the Britney Spears documentary, that was in the early 2000s. There were purity packs and purity rings and all of the pop stars who were role models for women were saying, 
I'm waiting for marriage because that is my value is to be seen as pure in that way. So like, you know, women were getting that message as well. And I, yeah, it's had a massive impact and we're still trying to, I think, get out of it. How old are 18 year olds now? What are they born in 2003? Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll get there, right? They, they missed right. the Brittany Justin experience. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's a good segue into like the career you've had. And um, before you started your current company, you started a company called Picture Motion, right? Um, it did, yes. Tell me a little bit about that and how you transitioned from that to your current um, company. Sure. Um, I started Picture Motion in 2012 um, and then evolved it with my partner, Wendy Cohen. Uh, we met when we were at Participant Media. Participant, uh, Picture Motion was a, an impact agency. So we worked with filmmakers, distributors, and studios to develop and implement, implement campaigns around movies, meaning what's that vision for change? What, what did this filmmaker want to do with this film from an impact standpoint? And how do we build a plan and a roadmap to, to meet it? Uh, and we executed it through nonprofit partnerships, through grassroots screening tours, um, cool digital campaigns, interactive social media campaigns, um, usually with a, a, a single call to action, but sometimes more complex conversations um, or capacity building around these issues. Um, we started it because I, we met at Participant Media I had, a, I had a wonderful job. I got to do digital strategy for the social impact team there and work on oh, amazing cool. documentaries. Yeah, I love like the work that Superman. participant does. I do too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we did the code, we did food ink. I feel like I got to work on, I, I got to like cut my teeth um, on the impact side for film on some of some of my favorite documentaries and um, that really made it made a difference. So this, the idea was here was, could we take what we did at participant at this amazing company um, and apply it to any films that don't have that participant backing or relationship? And so this is, again, like this is 10 years ago. And I think we'd started to see the conversation around millennials being interested in doing better in the world or being more civically minded. Um, this is, you know, coming out of Obama, just gotten elected <laughs> a couple of years before he's going into a second term. Um, and there was a lot out there. There were a lot of filmmakers trying to produce social impact films and wanted to find a way to get, get it out there. We also were looking at changes in technology and distribution um, in like the between, yes, yeah, like 2008, 2012, when we were looking at doing this. Um, you had self-distribution, you had social media, you could run, you could build a, your own website, um, sell your film through you know, Vimeo or VHX, uh, run your own ads, build your own following on email and, and Facebook, and essentially have a direct connection with your audience. But now you're a filmmaker and marketer and distributor. And so we started partnering with filmmakers to help run aspects of their, of their distribution, um, booking screenings or um, doing, uh, not virtual screenings, but delivering, connecting with people online, showing clips of the film, hosting online events. So we did that for about 10 years um, or nine years. Wow. And for me, I, I love that company so much. Um, they're amazing. They're, it's now run by Brian Walker and Juliet Ritchie um, as CEO and COO. And they're still on the same, same mission. How do we work with the world's best filmmakers and, and, the, and the entertainment industry to ensure these films that have their backing and their time and resources do make an impact and connect with audiences? And for me in the last couple of years, one of the, the pieces of the company that I started to feel more connected to was the distribution side seeing how films were getting distributed on a grassroots effort. So filmmakers are now running their distribution, shipping DVDs, and you have these activists on the ground organizing and using film to build connection and community. And so we wanted to spin it out as, as a distribution model focused just on that. How do we, how do we connect films with, um, how do we build a relationship with all these different screening hosts across the country? How do we fill what we're calling these cinema or, or called these cinema deserts, places where there aren't independent movie theaters, um, but there are people who love independent cinema or want to curate for their community in some way? How do we service film? How do we deliver it in a way that's not a DVD? Um, and how can we um, help them help give them marketing and outreach support? So that's where we, we came up with Kinema 
a long, I mean, it's a longer story than that. It's you know, a couple of years in the making, a pandemic in between. And we essentially just kind of have done our soft launch in the last, uh, in May and we'll do a more full launch this fall. Yeah. So tell us uh, uh, about Kenema, what it is, what the, what's the premise behind it and what you hope to accomplish with it. Sure. We were working on it, but we say it's a social cinema platform. We help people launch their own movie theater so they can support the filmmaking they want to see. And our mission is to make it fun and easy. I'll say that again. Our mission is to make it fun and easy uh, and financially rewarding for anyone to host screenings or become a curator of film in their community from art house to mainstream. So we built a digital operating system for filmmakers to manage their own non-theatrical exhibition. So from having a landing page and promoting it to uh, delivering the film digitally to connecting with their audience through email. Um, and then we also, on the other hand, are helping grow that network. We're building relationships with these screening hosts and film curators. Um, and these are both individuals and organizations and brick and mortar places and institutions. There are anyone that understands um, how to use film for community building um, or as a source of revenue, uh, you know, kind of tapping into if you're, if you're a huge lover of film, which sounds like you are, you essentially can curate your own films, either in your vir virtual cinema that you run through us, or if you, know, if you have access to any sort of brick and mortar place, start hosting screenings on Monday nights. You get a cut of all the ticket sales. Um, you basically do a rev share with the distributor or the filmmaker. So who would you say, do you have like a particular demographic that you go after? Like, are you going after the people who are, who are attempting to find an actual physical brick and mortar? Um, like if I, if I just have like a big house and have a cool theater room, is this something I would use or is it more geared towards people who, who are planning to like, like rent a gymnasium or an outdoor scenario or something like that? Yeah. So we, we like to make it extra confusing with the pandemic. So we have two products. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we have it, think of it this way. We have, if you want to organize a screening, you can do it in person or virtually. If you're doing it virtually, like we have everything you need. You just go in, you create your virtual cinema. It's got live chat. It's super secure. You can't steal the film. Um, it's got live video. So basically, you know, we're doing a video conversation now. Picture this piped in for the audience immediately after the movie showing or mm -hmm. a small version of it playing alongside the film and you can actually watch with your audience, oh, um, cool. Twitch style, yeah. or do a director's commentary. Yeah. So we've got that, that virtual piece. And then for the in-person piece, it is a digital delivery. So as a filmmaker, upload the film once and anyone who wants to organize an event then connects their account to it and we give them a license access to that film. And they essentially either pay for a one-time license or sell tickets uh, to be able to access that film for their event. And actually most, almost all of our screening hosts, they actually have access to a space. So they're either an individual or an institution. If they're an individual, they're partnering with someone uh, because they're passionate about that film or they're using the film for organizing. Most of our films right now lean more social issue oriented, partially it's, it's my background. Sure. Um, and on the institution side, yeah, it's your, you exist for another purpose. You are a museum, you're a church, your school, your community center. Um, and so because you're using, you have a, a primary purpose, you're using film to support that primary purpose. You're providing education, you're building community, you're passing on a faith message, um, but you are really serving, um, it's a community service in a way to bring people together through film and by curating and bringing in different independent films. We always, we, I mean, he probably hates the, I've talked about him so much in the last couple of weeks, but past, we talk about Pastor Greg in Clarksville because he articulates it better than, than we could. He lives, Clarksville is 90 minutes from any art house cinema, which is in Nashville. And so they do, they have um, mainstream movie theaters. They have, uh, which will play the Marvels, which I love. I love the Marvels and the Harry Potters, um, but that, that's kind of it. 
And so there is no art uh, option for curation. So he essentially curates movies and plays them either in his church or in another space that he uses and sells tickets. And essentially think of it like a pop-up art house on repeat. Like mm -hmm. every Monday in your church, you're going to go see a documentary um, that is like the, that's likely to be well-received by that community in Clarksville. And are the movies being streamed or do they get some like time download that self-destructs after a certain amount of time? Exactly. That's like Inspector Gadget. This message will self-destruct. Exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So we built an offline player essentially that allows us to manage the licensing. So oh, cool. our, our host, yeah, can go in and say, I want this film at this time. They get a window in which um, they can access the film. It downloads safely, securely to their computer. We just got our TPN security certificates. Oh, nice. uh, so we're, we're good to go there. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Feel good about that. That's a hard thing to do, people, if you're listening. So, I used to work for a company that, that got TPN. Oh, so, great. Yeah. That's good to hear because we're like trying to like explain. We're like, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a big deal. It's super it secure. Yeah. Um, so he can test the film and do um, a few test screenings of it, and then it expires within a limited amount of time or within a certain amount of time. Right, right. Um, how does one go about like getting the rights and the licenses to these films? So we work specifically with something called like the non-theatrical license, and it's not actually utilized that much. So you know, if you're selling your rights to a theatrical distributor, it's going to be movie theaters. If you sell mm -hmm. it to um, an SVOD, it could be you know on Netflix or an AVOD is posting it on, um, I think Hulu does AVOD and then TVOD, transactional, doing it on Apple. Um, so non-theatrical is essentially any kind of in-person exhibition of the film where it's ticketed, transactional, live, So, uh, but not in a movie theater. So these are... Yeah, yeah, so it's it's we've worked with this license for years. Like grassroots and independent filmmakers, they know how to run this license. They manage it. And part of the reason it often gets bought with, if like if you're Netflix, you're buying all rights worldwide, you're going to swoop this one up in it. Um, but if you're a theatrical distributor, you might just be interested in theatrical rights, you know, domestically, U.S., Canada, or certain regions. And you, the theatrical is a lot for you. The non-theatrical is a lot for you to manage because it's what we call it's scatter. You have a hundred different people, a few thousand different people requesting licenses, and they all require individual attention. And so my last company actually would work with a lot of theatrical distributors if they had that license, or the independent filmmaker if they didn't, and run those tours and run those screenings. Part of why we wanted to invest in building a platform for this was to help manage those relationships, manage the delivery of assets and manage the licensing and the payment and everything all in one place to cut down on all that individual, the individual phone calls and emails. We built you know, chat systems and bots to answer the, the most frequently asked questions to help cut down on all that time. So it's my long answer to it. It's the non-theatrical license in person and then virtually it's the virtual non-theatrical. Right. There has to be a host organizing a screening of the event. Got it. And are, are the licenses, are they domestic and international or is it just domestic? Depends. It's a, it's, we have a lot of control in our system. So if you're, you're a filmmaker and you have worldwide rights to your film, then you can you know, log in and say, okay, I, I want to make, make my film accessible to anyone, anywhere, um, in person or virtually. So, and then let's say a theatrical distributor is coming in and say, actually, I only have the U.S. domestic rights to this. Uh, for both virtually and in person, we put that in our system. So you mm -hmm. and I can log into a virtual screening that a host has because we're here in the U.S. I'm assuming, actually, I just didn't ask you. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then the uh, a theatrical or non-theatrically in person, you have to be in Los Angeles or in the U.S. to book a screening. So meaning, if someone you know from any other country tries to attend a virtual event, they're not going to be able to get in because they're geo-blocked. 
if they try and host one, they'll also get a message saying, sorry, it's not available for you. And part of the reason why we did this is we wanted to be able to do the intention before the pandemic was to focus on in person. We wanted to expand exhibition for, for films that do have distribution. So if you're releasing in 20 markets, we'll block you know, those 20 markets in our network. So Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, um, Dallas, like can't, our hosts in that network can't book screenings, hmm. but everywhere else can. So the film can play in the major theaters. Um, at the same time, it's in our network of smaller spaces across the US. Cool, I like that system. And so how, how has the pandemic affected the business? Has it been I, a positive thing or a negative thing? We're going to net positive, but real roller coaster. Right. <laughs> we set to launch, you know, like, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed March 2020. It's the oh, first geez. week of March 2020. <laughs> There's some about a pandemic and we're in Los Angeles, <laughs> my, my colleague and I. And right. we're doing two things. We're about to start fundraising because we were raising a, a seed round for to, to build the platform. And we had um, a version of the site that was up and our first release partnering with Magnolia Pictures for um, uh, John Lewis Good Trouble happening in April. So it's going to go into theaters. We're going to do oh, the non-theatrical, wow. big dreams. And then with pandemic hits. <laughs> uh, so, I know that feeling. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole everyone got derailed. Like we're not, we're not special in that way, but it right. was you take a minute and you're like, we have no idea what the world's going to be. The industry is changing like crazy. You can't predict. I talked to as many people as I could in the industry for months and everyone had the same answer. It's like, I'm not a soothsayer. Like, I can't tell you what's going to happen or when it's going to change. We, we, we don't know. So for, because we wanted to keep moving forward, we were like, okay, let's, let's stop fundraising. Let's pause, take a look. But we have an amazing engineer that we're working with. Tim Knight's an incredible CTO and engineer. And so he started building a virtual product. And we're like, well, let's just test out the virtual product. We partnered with my last company, Picture Motion, and we put together a virtual cinema by mid-April and did an amazing screening of a, a Jane Goodall documentary with National Geographic had 7,000 teachers watching simultaneously wow. with a leg. And we're like, okay, we, there might be something here, at least while we're in the pandemic. And so that's when we built the, the virtual product for the film. Or for, for Kinema and launched it and or slowly started um, releasing it and testing it out through the end of the year. And so we've now done, we've, we've had four, 460 so hosts work with us um, and organize screenings both virtually and in person. Uh, we're taking a beat right now to um, kind of organize, build, edit a couple of things. If there's probably a better word for a probably better tech word for editing when you're doing mm -hmm. it to a platform, editing our platform. <laughs> Um, and are rebranding and relaunching uh, in the fall. And I take it, so is your business model, you get a like a some cut of the ticket sales? We do. Yeah, we're doing 10% of ticket sales. Um, and then if, if there's no ticket sales, it's just licensing. It's, it depends on the distributor and filmmaker we're working with. Mm -hmm. um, we have different setups. And so if we're really coming on board as a partner and, and doing outreach and helping fill screenings, we have a, like an onboarding and access fee. If someone just wants to license the technology, we can do the something there too. We're kind of playing around with the different options because we we have really good cinema tech when it comes to both the uh, offline player for film delivery. Uh, we have a ticketing system with automatic payouts for all of our hosts. We have an incredible virtual cinema that's got great picture sound, all the live chat features, all in one place, um, and it can be run by the host. We don't they don't need um, our team to build or manage anything for them. It's entirely self-run. Yeah. What, it, what would you say is your biggest challenge to being able to scale? Is it on the technology side or on like the licensing and law side? Oh, let's see. It's an interesting licensing. No, I think, I think we've, let's see, I'm trying to think how to answer this. I'm like, challenge to scale. 
because I thought about it in a few different ways. Mm-hmm. So I think for us, like the the challenge, like the the tech is good. It's easy. I think the challenge to scale will be having to help people kind of understand a little bit mm. of what it means as a as a screening host. That today, the system has been. And when we talk about films today, you go to a movie theater and you watch it with a bunch of strangers. Right. You go or you watch it alone or you're watching it at home, like on your computer. There hasn't quite been this in between. And independent cinema has sounded very auteur and very inaccessible. Um, and so what we're trying to do is break that down and say, actually, this is accessible. We're almost, in a sense, franchising, um, running a movie theater by taking care of licensing, film delivery, helping with marketing. You just have to provide the space, which most of our hosts have. And so I think that's just such a new concept in that way. Right. Where I think the, the initial scaling part will be kind of explaining the story best of how this works, how you can make money as a screening host, how you can run a cinema without having to build a cinema in a way by partnering with mixed use spaces. So I think that's my convoluted answer of my, my biggest challenge to scaling in the short term, I think is kind of better, best explaining um, to a wider network of hosts how this works um, when we have kind of a, a traditional idea of what a movie theater is. And mm-hmm. it's just watch it home through a streamer or watching a giant movie theater. And, and what counts as non-theatrical? Like if a church has a big, because some churches nowadays are as big as theaters. Do those not count as, does it have to specifically be like a theater with a projection room? Like what counts as non-theatrical? It's I, I my understanding, my belief and legally, <laughs> like uh-huh. it's like, it's your, your traditional actual movie theater that's set up as a movie theater working with the distributor. Okay. Um, so you have like from AMCs to Regals to the, the landmarks and art houses. Mm-hmm. So if you're, an actual church, you haven't really been interested in having those relationships of being listed with mm-hmm. the distributor as um, as a theater in that way. Got you it. also, if you're your fun, your that's your primary purpose. Where that's not the church's primary purpose. The theater is going to be running a film. You know what, two to two to six shows a day, uh, seven days a week. And so you're also looking at a different revenue. For us, we're looking at those those mega churches or the small churches. If if every church in America became a movie theater on Monday night, that would be a massive impact. <laughs> right. A massive amount of people that are being reached. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you see your net your platform? I'm I'm assuming I, I didn't get a chance to do my homework on this part of what you guys do, but I'm assuming you don't have like Marvel movies on there yet. Not yet. So is your plan to have like those kind of big blockbuster type movies on there? And how do you get there? We were open to any type of movies. Oh, sorry. Say that again. You broke up. Oh, and and, uh, I was asking, is it your plan to be able to have those blockbuster type movies like the Marvels and the Disney's and and the Harry Potter's, like you said? And if so, like how, how do you get there? I think in the short term, we're we're focused on working with more the independent filmmakers Mm -hmm. um, and with theatrical distributors. Part of it is, is focusing on more, a range of independent stories being told, more artistic types of films, range mm-hmm. of educational documentaries. Like we love this space so much. It's also the space that can, um, I think, make the most, has the most opportunity when it comes to revenue and access. Um, and we really love working with independent filmmakers. They're, they're amazing hustlers. I, because, I, but I love movies in general. I love blockbusters. They're blockbusters mm-hmm. for a reason. They, they appeal to right. the large amount of people very easily. Um, and so when we also look at where our spaces are or where movie theaters are, there is a disconnect. You have major movie theaters in major cities, but they're and you can, I'll, I'm going to mess up my numbers on this, but a city has to be able to, or a town or a neighborhood has to be able to sustain a large movie theater. So there has to be enough people that can go see movies, you know, two to six days, six showings a week or a day for a week. And so then you have to service that film or you have to build that theater to service that type of film. So then you look at all these pockets and small neighborhoods that I think are interested in more niche content or would be interested in a wider range of films. And so we look at uh, 
So when I, so then you look at these neighborhoods that don't have movie theaters. And so there are parts of the US where there are no major cinemas. And so a Marvel is not gonna go. And I'm gonna just sum that up by just repeating Ava DuVernay. She says it way more succinctly than I just tried to do, which is <laughs> Selma couldn't play in Selma and Straight Outta Compton couldn't play in Compton. <laughs> and when she had her premiere, mm-hmm. uh, Wrinkle in Time, she had Disney build a movie theater in Compton so that kids could see it. Because it is, we forget, or we make, I think we make assumptions. I think Hollywood makes assumptions mm-hmm. that everyone has a car and can drive 20 miles to a theater or something yeah. where like lots of the U.S. are either rural um, and would have, would, you know, drive to, to farms or have access to um, churches or community centers that they're going to regularly or are, are taking public transportation. And it's not as easy to just pick up and go and grab a mm-hmm. car and like take your car to a movie theater. So that's what we're looking to kind of fill the gaps of distribution. And I think there are opportunities for major motion pictures and the blockbusters and tent poles to fill uh, in those spaces as well. If we can just apply your technology to voting in a lot oh of these. <laughs> a mean, lot of easier. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we're still going to be dealing with corrupt governments, right. <laughs> governors that that's are so changing funny. the laws and shutting down our theaters. Right. But yes. That's, uh, that's the nonprofit I worked for, Norman Lear, was all about getting young people to register to vote. Wow, that was amazing. it. And it was pop culture. I mean, at the time, it was MySpace. We used MySpace and Funnier Die and right. like <laughs> old social media tech <laughs> right. to connect with young people and get them to register online. But technology is evolving. When I was doing that, you couldn't register to vote online. Yeah. And that was 2000, that was there 2006, 2009. So 2007, right. 2009. You couldn't right. register to vote online. <laughs> you yeah. still can in some states. Uh, so all this talk about distribution and whatnot, um, I'm really interested to get your take on this topic because I have a feeling you're going to have a, 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 something good to say. So as of this recording, the biggest thing in the movie business right now, do you know where I'm going? Do you think you Is know it ScarJo and Disney? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney because they release um, um, Black Widow Day and Date on Disney Plus, which she her people are are alleging goes against her contract uh uh disney shot back basically outing her salary and then kind of like one of the headlines was or one of their statements was basically making her seem like this like insensitive person who doesn't care about the pandemic and making them it's just so funny coming from disney i can't right (laughs) like they're talking about how you know there's a pandemic going on she should be sensitive this is the company that's like shipping a whole bunch of people to florida so they can go work at their disney parks which are all open so i'm just like i have my thoughts i'm just curious what you think about the whole shenanigans you know i think i think they've done a great job of distracting like the argument it's it's just it's not about should scarlett johansson have more money or less money it's just what about what is fair of right. what was agreed to and and look at the numbers and I, I don't know the legal lease on this but my understanding is you know most hollywood stars they make a lot of upside on the film performing well theatrically they get a percentage of box office right the pandemic many of the film many of them lost that opportunity this also it, why why i care about this is on the independent film side they can you know they make these major motion pictures um they make that upside and then they get to take a salary cut or not make money or do an independent project or try right. out producing and directing so it's, for me it's, it's a part of the system um to have these higher salaries so it's not the argument whether she should make more money but it does benefit um the industry in the long run to have this type of talent applied to mm-hmm. um kind of smaller films and new directors um but then when they took it when they we lost theatrical in the in the pandemic 
and you have like the there was Jason Kyler from H HBO who was saying like we're not going to release anything, right. but they did right by the the, the talents. You know, they eventually. actually eventually in some yeah. ways I shouldn't speak all the way, but they did like right. make up for it financially in some way. Yeah, um, Netflix has always said you're not going to make any money at the box office. We're just going right. to pay you shit ton up front. <laughs> right, right. And I think in this case, <laughs> yeah, I. In this case, they both they said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do a mixed release, um, and you know it's pandemic, and that all makes sense. Except that there was that thirty dollar premium, which mm -hmm. was essentially like a replacement, and that's what I don't I don't know. Maybe you know where that fits in. If they they benefited that the the company of Disney, and again, mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of Disney. The so platform of Disney made a lot of money in a way from from releasing so quickly and driving people to that thirty k, and then they bragged about it. Yeah. So it was. <laughs> So it was also kind of inviting the conversation of like, oh, well, if you're happy about how much you made there, did any of the actors make upside on that? Because that, that did take away from ticket revenue, presumably. And I think when compared against other films that didn't do a day and date, uh, I think it was like the F9 and one of the horror films. Sorry, I don't know horror very well. They did. They Quiet did Place their, Part 2. Okay, that was it. Quiet Place Part yeah. 2. They didn't have as severe of a drop off on weekend too. Right. And so there was an argument to be made that because it was available on Disney, there absolutely was loss to be made and it wasn't made up for it in that. That's yeah. my understanding. Yeah. So I think it's not about how much money she's she's making. That's not the side of the point. And I think there'll be big there, as you know, there'll be big ramifications from this. Like how how will this change? Oh yeah. I, I think it's gonna be taught in business schools. I see this lawsuit as being a milestone, um, just because of how it's affecting like you said, how talent will be treated, how these contracts are, are going to be laid out. And I just, like, I, I think Disney comes across looking bad at this in the most part in terms of how they're handling it. And I mean, the fact that, you know, the fact that we even had to wait this long for a Black Widow movie in the first place, like we're about to get yeah. Ant-Man 3. I <laughs> exactly. Nobody asked for that. <laughs> I mean, I, I will, I'll watch it. I love them all. <laughs> sure, sure. But it's like for years we've been wanting because the Black Widow character is so interesting. There have been so many yeah. allusions to her past. And we're only just now. I mean, technically, we should have seen it last year. But even last year was like so much longer. And yeah. um, I just think even like just the way that how Disney's trying to portray her. And, and you know, I, I was watching... John Campia, who's this popular movie YouTuber, he he made this comment, which I agree on, which is she obviously during the press junket for this movie probably knew this was going on, but was professional. She didn't badmouth them. She did her thing. She made all of the Good point. news appearances. And when she knew they, Disney was probably like, you know, jank, being really janky with this whole situation, she basically held up her side of the bargain, I feel like and um was very class act about it so it's uh i think so too yeah. it's fascinating we're all we're all watching it i'm like reading everything i can on it so I, i'm right. not sure we're netted out as of this morning <laughs> right yeah no i'm not um, sure either, but it will have but ramifications yeah it is i mean it, it's huge and so um but when you're getting near the end of our time and i, I definitely want to make sure i have time to ask my speed round questions um, oh. i also want to be respectful of your time <sighs> Yeah, so we're, we're nearing we're, we're nearing the end here. Uh, we've been oh, uh, all right. Let me ask you my speed round questions, and I have one final question for you. Um, uh, so, a guilty pleasure TV or movie that you have. And here's my definition. I, I feel like I need to define guilty pleasure you because do. oftentimes people give me these answers, and I feel like that doesn't count as a guilty pleasure. Like, so a guilty pleasure, like a movie or television show that maybe 
the general public doesn't like or most people find horrible they don't like or maybe some aspect of it would be embarrassing for you to admit that you like but you watch it anyway i mean i'm a, i mean they're all kind of a lump in the same category so these to me are guilty pleasures which i think of like what do i want to default to yeah. that i might be embarrassed of but i can't help but watching yes. i'm still a huge gray's anatomy fan i love uh, it and every time something <laughs> has happened where when i bring that up i get shamed and i don't understand <laughs> what happened it's like the number one show on television right. my highest paid actress why do i keep getting shamed every time i mention that i still watch the show right so, that's a good I don't point get it. Like, People give, they're like, isn't it a soap opera? I'm like, oh, calm down. Everything's a soap opera. That's how we do television. <laughs> right. Uh, what was the last thing that you saw, like a movie or television show that surprised you? Uh, actually, Succession. I, really? I, I didn't right. watch it. I didn't watch it when it first came out. I just watched it in the last two weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I thought they were all truly, it felt like I was going to watch a show of terrible people, which it was, but I right. actually found it really just it's fantastic. It's really yeah, good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, if you could collaborate with anyone, well, I normally ask this of filmmakers, but um, if you could collaborate with anyone on a film, who would it be and why? Can I say distributor? Because I would like, yeah, I would genuinely I like, yeah. yeah, if it's It'll a film, I would, because thank you. Yes. I think, I mean, I would love to work with Array now and an Array of releasing, like with an Ava. Like this is the, the quotes I use are because I genuinely believe in what she's doing over at Array. Right. Um, and she's approaching it from a different angle of like the same similar type of partner-based distribution for mm -hmm. working with communities to distribute films. So like if I could work with anybody, like it, it would be Ava and the team over at Array, Array releasing and Array Now. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, have you, do you know the podcast Recode? I do, yeah. Can, have you been it, on that? Uh, no. <laughs> you need to be on that show. I just kind of feel like you need to get your press people on that because I think the kind of stuff that you're doing, <laughs> I'm serious, like. Like you're tailor made for that podcast. Like, oh God, okay. Yeah. No, and I'll take that as a huge compliment. I really like that podcast. Yeah, so do I. Um, <laughs> I think he asks good questions. Um, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, my little podcast. Thanks, it's and, a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, where can people get information about Kinema if they want to host the next Marvel movie in their backyard? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's at some point, I'm joking. At some they point, if they want to host we the have... next independent feature in their backyard it's true we i mean we, we actually i love all of our films on the platform right now we have yeah. um we have a few titles coming on new titles from magnolia uh, and greenwich entertainment uh so kinema.com if you go to kinema.com discover you can join any of the public screenings that people are hosting oh, cool. um, every monday at eight o'clock i host a screening mm -hmm. um i do an introduction we watch a film together and then i bring on usually the filmmaker or a special guest oh, um so yeah, yesterday we, for James Baldwin's, uh, what would have been his 97th birthday, we showed I Am Not Your Negro. Oh, um, wow. His nephew, yeah, his nephew Trey, uh, Trevor Baldwin came on and we talked about the family and the estates and the impact he had on, on Trevor's life. It was great. So it would be too late for someone to watch that now because you had to. Exactly. Oh, geez. It's man. FOMO. It's, it's FOMO. gone. Like, I have major yep. FOMO for that. That would have been so cool. Yep. Do you guys do I mean, any kind of like like an email list where people can sign up and know who, what's coming up? And yes, we yeah. should have somebody. We're actually because we're rebranding and moving things around. It should yeah. be really easy to find on our homepage, but now right. I'm going to regret saying that because I'm not sure it is. <laughs> okay, well maybe by the time this gets posted, all that will be yeah. Or hit us up on social. It's like we're we're you know we're a small but growing team, so we all read yeah. all the socials. So just like hit us up on right. any social. And um, where where are yeah, you guys we'll located? I'm, I'm based in New York. Our team's between New York and LA. Okay, which part of New York? Uh, I'm in Soho, Tribeca area off Canal Street. Okay, cool, cool.
Yeah, where well, are you in LA? I'll be out there next week. <laughs> I'm in the near Culver City. Okay. Oh, Culver yeah, City's we great. should meet for lunch if you want. Great, if you done. have time. I'm, yeah. I'm around. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Christy Marquez. Marchese. Marchese. Christy Marchese. <laughs> thank you, Christy Marquez. It's been nice. Oh, no, you remembered. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and part of the Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Huge thanks to Christine. If you're interested in learning more about their film distribution platform and system, check out kinema.com. That's K-E-N as in Nancy, E-M as in Mary, A dot com. For additional links and resources, check out the blog post for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. And you can also find links and whatnot in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at BladeRonner, that's Ronner with a no. And you can follow Pro Video Coalition at Twitter.com slash ProVideo. That's it for now. Remember, until next time, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Mm-hmm.